All right, all you delinquents. That's a new term I just came up with for Below the Line listeners. Today's episode is with Bill Maris. You may know him from some of his greatest hits like building Google Ventures, starting Google X, Calico, his own company that he sold before he was recruited to run and build out Google Ventures to his own firm, Section 32. Over the last 15 years, he has been one of the most prolific and spot-on badass investors in Silicon Valley. That continues with his own firm, but we actually spend a lot of the time talking about everything that he learned as an outsider coming into Silicon Valley and building out one of the best VC firms in the last decade, all from scratch. So I think you're going to dig this conversation with Bill. And if you like conversations right at the intersection of creation, philosophy, and technology, then lightly, ever so lightly graze that subscribe button. And if you're on YouTube, we just started putting our episodes on YouTube, hit that little bell button. Like the video. Go make a bunch of friends in the comments section. Drop the things that you hate, like me saying um too much, or drop the things that you love from each episode. Do it all. I think, well, Bill, I should have asked him about the, uh, the Google algorithm to see if it actually does help at YouTube, but I have a feeling it does, so go and do it. So without further ado, let's get into it with Bill Maris. This is Below the Line. Bill, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you for joining. You have a really interesting story, backstory. Do you mind giving listeners um, just a little bit of, of how you found your way into venture investing? Oh, uh, by way it's of like the way. Neuroscience. Absolutely. Yeah. The way I found my way into almost everything is completely random, unpredictable, undeserved, uh, and, and, uh, and just trying to make the most of the opportunities that were presented to me as they came along. So um, I have a background in neuroscience uh, academically um and uh it was kind of doing some research there i then um when i graduated from college i moved to california um and uh just with a couple friends uh to san francisco uh and quickly ran out of money so i needed to get a job uh and i was randomly uh, uh offered a job uh for a company called investor ab which is a, a swedish a multinational investing firm. What year was this? This was 1997. Okay. Um, so kind of like ancient history now, but, um, <laughs> uh, and I, uh, I took it. I didn't know anything about it. It was to be a biotechnology kind of analyst portfolio manager kind of thing. Super entry level, had no idea, uh, what I was doing totally unqualified for that job. Um, but I took it and, I, I knew within the first day that this was not for me, like wear a suit, like live in Manhattan, go, you know, taking the bus and the weather's miserable. It's too hot. It's like snowing. It's all of the things. And, and so I started plotting my escape day one. Um, but there was an interesting, uh, uh, side note to that, which is I shared that I shared an office or seven of us in the office in New York and my office mate was someone else who this was also their first job out of college. Um, and she had a background in molecular biology. And I would say, uh, I think it's no secret, equally unqualified and clueless as to what we were doing. We kind of looked at each other every day and we're like, what are we doing here? Like, what, why, why, why did they hire us? And, uh, and, 
her name's Ann Wojcicki, who's, uh, you know, one of my uh, uh, best friends these days. And we just remained friends uh, for many years through that. But but at that time, you know, we, we were hand to mouth. Like we were we were literally staying in the office. Real quick, Bill, just to clarify for for listeners, is that uh, is that the CEO of YouTube? No, Ann Wojcicki, uh, her sister is. Ann uh, is the founder of 23andMe. Okay. But at the time, it was like, if you stayed at the office past, like I think it was like 6.30 or 7, you could have dinner for free. Like you could charge it to the company. Mm. And just, we didn't have the money. So we were like, we're just staying. Like we're, we'll come in on Saturday because we just needed food. And like it was not a, um, a glamorous existence at all. Uh, and, um, and so I, like I said, plotted my escape. I decided to start an internet company. Uh, and I started, a, um, uh, basically, I, long story short, I had visited on my first ever business trip, kind of the, the, the headquarters of our company. And I saw in one of their closets, these, this rack of computers. And I just started asking questions and they said, oh, this is where your, your email is. And I thought, well, if they can have my email in their closet, I can have other people's email in my closet. So I'm going to start a company that does that kind of thing. And so... And I knew nothing about it, uh, but no one really did. This is 1997. So yeah. I started an internet web hosting and data center company and was building websites and um, just trying a whole bunch of things, just bootstrapped it with credit cards in my apartment. Um, and uh, and it, you know, it just took off, basically. I, the first six months were really, really hard. Couldn't get any customers. And then I was, you know, really reaching the, the end of my um, uh, uh, credit limit, essentially. And I was like, okay, well, what am I going to do? And so I thought, well, uh, I'm going to go, I went to 10 companies and said, if I build you a website and host it for free, and this is at a time where no one knew what hosting a website even meant, I'll give you email and can I tell other people that you're my customer and you don't have to pay me anything. And that, that's kind of how, and, and that was my go-to-market strategy in the kind of at my death throes of the company and that worked and they told friends who told friends and then from there on out most of the business was referral based and 10 became a thousand became 10,000 became 20,000 customers uh and it it took off and then i almost sold the business in 2000 uh uh to a um to a, a large uh telecommunications company I was going to join the board with paul allen it was going to be this amazing thing and wow. It was like, I want to say it was like March 6th of 2000. Uh, we were about to close the deal and sign everything. And the stock market crashed, uh, you know, like, you know, the big dot-com bust. Hmm. And they just called and said, there's no deal. And I was like, what do you mean there's no deal? Like, we, we, we're, all, we're all, you can sue us, but there's no deal. Like, where is it? And so wow. it was like, okay, like you had to have one bad day and then you just have to go back to work. Was it like... <sighs> Was it one bad day? Was it three bad days? And then you... It was pretty crushing uh, blow. It was, uh, I had really mentally, if you're an entrepreneur and you've been through this, there's a gear shift you go into where you're like, okay, I'm going to let this go. It's time to move on uh, to the next thing. I've done what I can do here. You know, I either can't, don't know how, or don't want to do the next stage of this. Uh, and... Um, it was at a time where, you know, uh, uh, this was, yeah, 2000, um, uh, there was an illness in my family. I just, my heart was really, I had to really say, okay, well, change gears. So yeah, one bad day and, and you know, or bad afternoon. And literally 
I had arranged for BMWs for everyone in the company. So there are these car carriers pulling up into the parking lot with these cars for everyone. And I had to go out in the parking lot in front of everyone and say, sorry, you got to take them back. <laughs> I had to drive away. How, so, how, so, you know, how old were you at this at this point? 20, uh, let's see. Uh, let's see, 23, 24? Oh my God. Something like that. Yeah, 24, 25, something like that. 24, I want to say. Yeah, and so it was, you know, it was like a real gear shift. Just real quick to zoom in on that experience as a 23, 24 year old. How many employees? Tell me like everything that when you yeah. were going through it that afternoon, all of the things you were thinking through. And, you know, it was preceded by a lot of other hard days, to be honest. I, you know, I just started this with no background in computer science. I, I didn't take any computer science courses in college. I went literally went to Barnes and Noble, which is a bookstore or used to be a bookstore. <laughs> and I bought a bunch of books about how to write computer code and just sat in my apartment by myself and read them. And then I called up Dell and I was like, I need some computers, like bigger ones. Uh, and the biggest computer you could buy at Dell had three nine gigabyte drives, which compares to like the, I don't know, the, you know, uh, the, this thing has 500 500 gigs in this ipad yeah yeah and so three nine gig drives in a raid five array which gives you you know not a lot of storage uh but at the time seemed massive and that was like a twenty five thousand dollar purchase so i bought three of these computers and they arrived and i had no idea what to do with them there was no uh manual on how to start you know (laughs) that is start hosting websites so I just figured it out uh, through over the course of about six months, just by myself, uh, knowing that I was living on a credit card and that that would run out. I didn't have like savings or anything like that. And um, and uh, and, you know, I eventually in the book that came with the computer with with Windows NT, there was a number in the back, an 800 number. And for one hundred dollars, which seemed like a lot at the time, you could open a support case with Microsoft. And you could keep calling back until they solved the case. And so on my like 15th call, they kind of were like, finally like, what are you trying to do? And I was like, oh, I'm trying trying to start a web hosting company. And they're like, please stop calling. <laughs> like you can't, you know, that's not a support issue. And so, um, <laughs> so I, I eventually like uh, figured it out uh, and got things, you know, to work uh, and started hiring people. And so, uh, and you know, building the business uh, kind of incrementally, but I didn't have the luxury of venture investors. You know, I sent letters, by the way, to Kleiner Perkins and others, like handwritten, you know, kind of like you know, computer generated like letters. I in the mail because there wasn't that was how you did it then. Never heard back from anyone. Uh, think you know, so it's not like I I tried, but it, it wasn't the same venture environment. There was no. Y Combinator or Techstars, it's so much more robust of an environment now, uh, which is so great. Uh, but at this time, it's like figure it out on your own. There were, you know, there was the bookstore and, you know, kind of the internet, but it was like CompuServe, Prodigy, like, like kind of internet out there, but most people didn't have websites. When we sold to Airbnb, it was a, um, I remember that so the night we signed the paperwork, I was just, I was flattened. Just, I was so exhausted. It, so what what were you like i could i can't imagine what it would be like if they that day where i'm like yeah. i'm finally just going to yeah. take be able to take a breather i thought i had reached the end of the line of me building ikea desks and uh all of that and it's like okay we're finally stepping into the big leagues um 
it was really um really disappointing uh it was really uh i had you know there was going to be like a celebration and that kind of thing and uh and i thought it was gonna be great for all the people that worked with me uh and uh and you know but it just wasn't to be there was a different path uh that was meant to be and it wasn't that one so so it was uh, a bummer but when you're running a business and you've got at least for me you've got dozens of people whose livelihoods are dependent on you you can't really just hold up and uh and be sad for weeks at a time you you, you got you got a business to run and so so I was like, okay, well, we have a business to run. And I knew how to do that because I could never run at a loss. I always had mm-hmm. to run the business profitably because we didn't have investors weren't, you know, at, at the scale of today's investments were not really an option. Uh-huh. And so I did do a funding round with like an angel investor and, uh, and that sort of thing of uh, like a million dollars uh, to fund, help fund the build out of, a, of, a, of an actual data center that was not in my apartment. I mean, I remember in the dot-com frenzy, getting calls from like NTT and AT&T and all these giant companies. They were like, well, we want to come visit you. Like the corporate development arms are, you know, they're frenzy trying to buy up these kinds of companies. And I'm like sitting in this office, which I see my like bed over there. I'm like, and the kitchen's there. I'm like, I don't think they really want to visit this. Like, this is not what you think it is. And, uh, and so I did build out uh, a real office, but prior to that, you know, I have all these servers in your apartment, in my apartment. And I was in Vermont at the time. This is where I started it in Vermont. Uh, and you know, it's, it's dead winter and it's like you're 10 below outside, but these servers are generating heat and they're like closed in one room. So I'm running the AC all the time to keep them cool, which means the rest of the office where we're all working, like your water would freeze over. Like, you know, I've got pictures, like you're wearing gloves, you've got a hat on, you're doing tech support. Uh, it's like you're outside basically. Yeah. It was, uh, you know, and I'm, they go home, I'm sleeping on the floor at night, uh, et cetera. So then we did build out this, this office and it looked like we were going to sell the company. It's like, ah, that sacrifice. And no, but I was 20 something. It's like, I didn't have a lot to lose. It was kind Mm -hmm. of like, it was a fun adventure. That was a real bummer. That was a a real letdown, but it seemed too good to be true anyway. Mm. Right. Like, so it's like you lose this, this kind of illusory dream of like, oh, everyone's going to get a car and going to make millions of dollars. It's like, well, I never had that in my life anyway. So for it to have gone away was kind of like, that's a bummer, but it's, you didn't take away anything I ever had. So I didn't even know what it was like, you know, it was, um, it's like, okay, well, I'll just go back to what I was doing. That was ultimately where I landed. And it sounds like it was a massive cushion to have a profitable business. So many startups that are going through acquisition process, it really is, they don't have that to fall back on. It allows you a lot of strength uh, mm-hmm. to not have to take a deal uh, if you don't want to, to not have to sell the company. It's so much easier to control revenue than to control expenses than it is revenue. Mm-hmm. So if you're building a business and you have to, you know, it's your own money you're spending and it's a, there's a limited amount of it, you're going to be very parsimonious about what you do mm-hmm. and, and how you treat it. Uh, and you can't really control revenue in the same way. Um, and as you know, more revenue solves all problems, really. So, so if you, you know, that's something Eric Schmidt used to say, it's like, uh, yes, and you need to get more revenue. And so you can control the expense side a lot more uh, easily. And so, so I was accustomed to that, went back to work. And three years later, I sold the business to another company. We merged it and that company uh, was then renamed web.com. So my company kind of like went into that, uh, which is now one of the large kind of web hosting 
platforms. Uh, but that was a wild and fun time. It was all of it was so unexpected. I didn't know I was getting on a roller coaster of the dot com. You know, I just was like, I, I don't want to work for someone else. So I'm going to start my own company. And I thought about like, should I start a magazine? Should I do this? And I just ended up doing this thing because of the server I saw at this office one time and thought, well, seems great. Like, let me try that. And I right. didn't realize I was part of this like bigger tsunami of the internet that was happening uh, and sold the business. Uh, it was, uh, it was a great outcome. Um, and, uh, and then I was like, well, what do I do now? Like, so what did you do? I, you know, I was 25. I had, there had been, some, you know, like I said, there had been some illness in my family and, you know, kind of like my heart as to, was it really in doing this anymore? That's kind of part of why I sold it. And, uh, and, um, you know, it was, you know, it was, a, it was a hard time. It, it sounds weird, but at the same time to say like, oh, well, you sold your business. How could it be hard? It's like, well, what's your purpose then? Like, you know, and I, I've seen this happen with a number of friends, even at Google who are wildly successful by, if you measure it by financial means or what they've done with their careers. And then it's like, well, what do I do next though? Like I can never top that. Like, how do you top being the X number employee at Google, you know? And, uh, and obviously the answer is you don't try to top it. It's not about that. It's not a contest, but at the time it was like, well, well, you know, do I start another company? Like I have enough, I have made more money then than probably my family had ever earned like in its, you know, like in a generation. Uh, and I didn't grow up with that. So it's like, well, how do I live? Like, what is that? You know? And so I just kind of spent a couple of years trying to figure that out. Like, you know, who am I? And like, what do I want to do with, with life? And, you know, and when you're in your 20, at least for me, when I was, I'll speak for myself, when I was in my twenties, I didn't know who I was. I'm not sure if I do now, but I have a better sense than I did then and, and what I wanted to be and when, what was important and, and, and how to live and, uh, and, and, and really have a sense of, of what life is about. And so, um, I just thought, well, I just keep the adventure going. And so this opportunity presented, you know, and I met, I met Sergey and Larry through Anne in 1998, when Google was getting started, there were just a couple of guys in rollerblades, like in a garage. Uh, and, and I already had a business that was going, uh, and I was like, oh, this is neat. Like they have a startup too. And obviously, you know, that went, went, went even better. And so, um, so now we're at like 2006, 2007 and, and, and real quick, uh, tell me re quickly what, what that experience is like when you met, if you remember Larry, Larry and yeah, Sergey for the first time. It was completely time. unmemorable. It was really? like, it was not remarkable in any way. It was, it was one of many individuals or pairs of people like that, that I met who were doing startups mm -hmm. and, and there was really, to me, not, not a lot that distinguished it. It was like, Oh, that's interesting. They're in your sister's garage. Like, are we going to dinner now? Or like, what's happening? Like, really? you know, and, yeah. uh, and so, uh, you know, I got to know them, uh, and, and, you know, uh, in large part, Sergey, because Anne and Sergey started dating. Uh, and, um, and so I got to know, uh, and be friends with, uh, with them. And I just had an aversion to, there was always a pull to Bill move to California, like come hang out with us, like do something at Google. And it's kind of like, I don't want to work for a big company. I don't want to work for someone else. I certainly don't want to work for my friends. Mm -hmm. So like three strikes. Um, and, uh, and yet, uh, eventually 
this opportunity presented to, you know, hey, we're thinking about starting a venture fund. And it's like, you know, like web hosting, I know not, I know at the time, I know nothing about venture, the venture business, but I'm willing to work really hard uh, and make the most of an opportunity and, and probably hopefully work harder than, you know, than anyone else that might get this opportunity. So I thought, well, sure. Like I'll, I'll, you know, I'm open to that. Like, let's, let's talk. And then I got put in this interview process and, you know, frankly, there were many opportunities for me to not get that job. Uh, it's 23 interviews that I went through and I'm flying from, you know, there's no zoom then. So I'm flying from Vermont to California, uh, you know, on my own dime to, uh, you know, and I didn't make hundreds of millions of dollars. I made enough money in selling my company to be comfortable, but not to like fly on a private plane or anything like that. That was like a foreign concept to me. Uh, and so, uh, you know, sort of uh, uh, coming out and each interview is like, it's like, is this the last one? Like, <laughs> there's not much more, you know, I don't, you know, they, I remember being asked like, well, what startups have you invested in? I was like, well, none. Like I, my own, uh, what entrepreneurs do you know? I don't really know any, like Wait, I live what? in Vermont. That's, I don't know. Anybody. And it was defined as this is going to be the venture arm for Google. And this, what year was this? You know, it was really an idea that Eric, I, th I think, uh, had, and that Larry and Sergey had that they were like also supportive of, of like, we're part of an ecosystem. Uh, we benefited from venture investing it would be good to be part of that ecosystem in an ongoing way and support startups. And maybe we'll learn something. Maybe, you know, we'll, we'll find interesting things to invest in. And, you know, Google through Sergey had invested in 23andMe. And I think, you know, part of that was like, Hey, we need to clean this process up because we're like a real getting to be a real company now that, you know, that there should be an arm's length decision made on, on how and what we invest in. And Google had been very scattershot. I think 23andMe is going to work out great, but there have been a number of other investments at the time that were just not well thought out and not followed up on. If you're a silent investor, like an angel investor, that's one thing. But when you're Google and you're like super engaged, you invest in a company and then you disappear or the person you were talking to is no longer at the company. That's very like, doesn't create a great reputation for the company. So, And what year was this? This is 2007. Okay, yeah. yeah. So it's a, it is, it is, Almost basically the modern Google massive brand. Yeah, you know, it, well, you know it had it had you know one hundred and twenty thousand fewer people. Uh, so mm -hmm. it was it was it was Google, but it was still the quirky, disruptive, fun newcomer. It was um, uh, it was did not feel at all like a big company, um, mm -hmm. and uh, um, and there were no pr real processes. There was no budgets. Like it was, mm -hmm. it was very loosey goosey, uh, and. Uh, and that was appealing because it's like, oh, okay, I don't know what I'm doing either. Doesn't seem like you guys know what you're doing. So this will work out great. Um, and so I um, kept coming to interviews, uh, and I uh, and I just decided to myself, like, I'm just going to keep showing up. Like, I, I'm just going to keep pushing this and see what happens because it seems interesting. And you know, choosing the more interesting path as opposed to like, oh, I'll do nothing or I'll just kind of consult or maybe I'll, you know, go help run the company that bought my company. Like, no, this seemed a lot more interesting and I could learn more. So I'm like, I'm just gonna keep showing up and I'm just gonna keep asking like, is there an ex interview? Uh, and then uh, eventually um, it did result in an offer, but it was a very, very painful process. Um, I did get feedback 
um, uh, from inside the company. Uh, someone told me that at uh, at one point, uh, some one of the interviewers said that I that nice guy doesn't have the intellectual horsepower for the job, so he's he's out. And I was like, oh well, maybe maybe that's true. I don't know. Like I don't have an advanced degree. I don't know. Um, uh, of course, you know, inside I kind of was like, well, that's that's kind of mean. Like. Like, well, I'm just, you know, I'm just trying. Uh, well, then so. you graduated top of your class as a neuroscientist, uh, had done neuroscience research with Duke. It's it's hard to imagine. Okay, but it, actually, no, you can't imagine that with Google uh, having a, uh, a, a a little bit of a arrogance around. It was a little bit of a taste. It was a taste of company politics. Uh-huh. This is the, because the person who gave that feedback wanted the job themselves. and. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And so I, I didn't know that at the time, at the time, you know, and whatever, I'm like, I'm not judging you. Don't judge me. Like I'm you know, whatever. So, um, and like I said, maybe they're right. I don't know. And, um, but I thought I'm willing to work hard and this doesn't seem like that difficult what you're asking, which is to start, you know, an idea of like, what would a venture fund that Google is starting and running and, and leading, what would it look like? And so I didn't come in to run it or to lead it or any, I came in to like research it, think about it, and then propose an idea to, to Eric, Larry, and Sergey as to like, what would that look like? And I literally, I, honestly, I showed up and I, I almost quit the first year, probably a dozen times. Uh, I decided after like a month, um, because it was a very chaotic place. I, I didn't really have a boss. They sat me at a desk in open space no one was telling me like what I should do or work on. It was just kind of like, here's a badge, like go do something productive. Hmm. And, uh, and it's a very ambiguous, uh, workplace and that's okay. I'm, I'm fine with that, but I didn't know anyone like other than, you know, uh, you know, Anne. I didn't know anyone in the company. Uh, and I always, you know, uh, kept my relationship with Sergey's friendship outside of work and we didn't see each other where I'm just sort of like, you know, I'm whatever, 27, 20, I don't know what I was, 30 years old, however old I was, just sitting there like, okay, well, what do I do now? And and I decided to myself, I'm going to think about this like, maybe like you might think about like the army. Like I'm signed up. If I allow myself the option of leaving, I'll, I'll take it. Because like there were more bad days than good early on. It's sort of like your first year of college. It was a lot like college. There's cafeterias. There's food. They do your laundry if you want them to. It's very strange for me to like be from the East Coast to be put into this environment. What, what was um, what was hard about it? It sounds obviously it sounds pretty uh, cush, lonely. but but it, yeah, just lonely and and it was lonely. And you know, honestly, there was someone there that I was working with that was just making life miserable. I think there was resentment because that person wanted to uh, lead it. Uh, and I wasn't, I didn't, I wasn't trying to lead it. I just thought, well, I'm just doing a research project. And, and, and I spent that first year, um, like I said, telling myself, I don't have an out. Like I'm going to finish this. I started this, I'm going to mark it on the calendar and I will not revisit, you know, what I'm doing here until that date. Uh, and I'll make a decision then based on more information. That's smart. And so I just buckled down and did, you know, when I met with every VC I could find, uh, on, on Sand Hill road. I read all the academic literature, tried to get meetings with the people who wrote that academic literature about venture and how returns are generated and what makes a good portfolio. And 
you know, probably half the time I met with VCs on Sand Hill Road, they just laughed, literally laughed at the idea that Google would start a venture fund, which I could understand that at the time Google's reputation as an investor was terrible. What, you know, what did Google ever really done besides search and mail? Like this seemed crazy, you know, Intel had a venture arm, but it was, you know, kind of this one example. Uh, there weren't many other examples. you know, Disney had one, but it was little and J&J had one, but it was very focused on biotech and healthcare. And so uh, there's a lot of uh, uh, derision, I would say, and, and skepticism, which makes sense um, in retrospect. It's, and then I, is yeah, it, do you think that's perhaps how you got the job if, if it, this was the time before the prestige of Google Ventures and, and GV? Oh, yeah. Do you think it was the... Oh, nobody wanted this job. This really? was, nobody wanted this job. I, so, so part of my job was to hire a recruiting firm mm -hmm. to go out and find someone to do the job. Mm -hmm. uh, and so we hired this uh, nationally known top three recruiting firm to bring in a lead to run Google Ventures and interviewed a number of who are today's leading venture capitalists. No one was interested. It's like, look, you guys are starting below zero. Like you don't even have a neutral reputation. Um, entrepreneurs are going to be afraid that Google's going to steal their ideas and their IP or their, or their engineers. Cause you had a very aggressive recruiting arm at that time to, to bring in engineering talent. Like, and there doesn't seem to be the, the independence and the financial rewards that go with being a venture capitalist that if I go work at Greylock or Benchmark or wherever, like how is that's better in, in every way hmm. uh, to do that. And so no one, you know, we couldn't find anyone that either wanted the job, but the few people that might've wanted the job just didn't pass muster with Eric, Larry, Sergey. It was like, we don't know these people. Like I don't like them. They have, you know, there's not a personality sync. It just wasn't, wasn't working. Uh, and so, I, uh, I just literally said, well, uh, like my career is really just volunteering for things that I am completely unqualified <laughs> to do, um, and over and over. Uh, and so I just, you know, although they say never volunteer, I said, why don't I do it? Like I, I'll, I will try. And, uh, here's what the research tells me we need in order for it to be successful. It needs to be independent, meaning. It's not supervised by Larry and Sergey. It's not, it's not your sandbox. It's not a place for you to play and sprinkle money around to blimp and Zeppelin companies and flying cars. And it's, a, it's for serious investments that will generate returns. So two, it needs to be returns based. It will be judged on its returns, not strategic fit, not, you know, does it find M&A targets for Google? Those are such squishy targets. It never works. Mm -hmm. uh, and three, the people who work here should be, paid like venture capitalists because you want venture capitalists to work here. And if you don't pay them like that, they will, the good ones will find jobs at real venture funds. And the ones who can't, you know, you'll just sort of average out to this reverse kind of evolutionary process of kind of the most mediocre people. And that's definitely what we don't want. And so those are the, and, and, and to their credit, Eric, Larry, Sergey were like, okay, we should do that. That sounds reasonable. And Eric taught venture capital at Stanford. Like he completely got it. And he was the CEO at the time. Mm -hmm. It's like, you should do it. We're going to give you a hundred million dollar fund to start. It will meet all of those criteria that, that you set out. Um, and, uh, and it was through that process that I met and I really got to be friends with like Salar Kamangar, who's a good friend who was early at Google and was the CEO of YouTube and Bill Corin, who was ran engineering at Google is now at Sequoia. Um, and forged real friendships in this 
you know, very uh, nascent startup thing that I was trying to get off the ground that was not, there was no belief that it was going to go anywhere, maybe except for Eric Larry Sergey. Uh, and, uh, and so Eric said, he was very clear. He's like, look, I'm going to let you do this. Um, don't screw it up. Uh, and I'm going to know whether you're good at it. I'm not going to know like next week, but it will become clear at some point because I like venture is one of those businesses, unlike music where it's like, Oh, it's very clear whether you did a good job here. It's not art. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, uh, and I said, okay, well, again, I've got nothing to lose and this seems like fun and exciting. So let's try. And so, um, quick side, quick sidebar on on that is one. I do want to know if Larry, Sergey, Eric did come to you with these crazy ideas as this sandbox before that was established. Okay. I want to hear about those stories. And then I also want to hear your, it's a really interesting, almost survey of the land of the best VCs and what patterns did you notice in that, in that research for what would make a great venture investor? But let's start with the wild, crazy sidebar of the ideas they came to you with. Oh, I mean, I, I would get dumps into my email all the time of check this out, check this out, check, what do you think of this? And, you know, just all over the map. Um, And to their credit, there was never follow-up. It was never, (laughs) never pressure. It was never like you should, and you should do this. It was just like, please check this out. And there was, and and is a lot of trust there. I had known them a long time. They knew I was not there to screw things up. I was not there to take their money or use Google's reputation to, as a stepping stone or, or to do anything weird. So it was like, just send it to bill and like he's our like you know investment and uh and startup guy uh and and i'll take a look at it and and you know there's an unsung hero in all this uh, which i'll mention who's rich minor uh rich was the co-founder of android uh and very early on my collaborator in getting this thing off the ground uh so rich uh, you know uh android had been acquired by google mm-hmm. uh and rich and i started working together very soon after i started at google and Rich had previously run Orange Ventures for the French telecommunications company Orange. So he had venture experience and, and Android had taken venture funding and, and so forth. And so, so having that, and he was on the East Coast though. So we always worked virtually. So this kind of Zoom way of Zooming, we've been doing for a long time. And, and Rich is a dear friend and really um, deserves a lot of credit for one, making fantastic investments uh, um, and, uh, and really helping to conceptualize and provide some, uh, you know, another voice in the room to say like, you know, it's not just Bill sort of shilling this idea. Um, it's, you know, it's like, no, this is reasonable and here's a, you know, grown adult and so forth. And, and, uh, and uh, he's on board with it as well. And That's so Rich invaluable. joined as the first, yeah. first partner and, 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 and Rich is a great person, great investor uh, and a great friend. And so, he really is a kind of unsung hero in a lot of that and getting this thing off the ground. Yeah, uh, that's it's a, not like that type of a partner. I mean, it's, especially I do want to know about the the politics of Google. It sounds like it's it's, it's like, invaluable to have someone smart like that that is an adult in the room saying, "Yep, yeah, it's a good idea." Yeah, and and Rich and I have very complimentary styles. Uh, so it, he's a great person. That I love Rich and love working with him uh, and. Uh, and it was a great partnership. Uh, and and he and I, in our first fund at Google together, made great investments. The fund did great, uh, but you know, early on, you just you don't know. Like you and 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 I hadn't really done 
uh, venture before. I'd you know obviously read about it a lot, but I think Google and Eric liked that. It was like totally different approach. We're building a very special shoe for a very different kind of foot for Google, a very unique venture fund, uh, and and they really did the things they said. They gave us you know freedom, autonomy, carte blanche. Uh, no one ever interfered in investment decisions. Never pushed anything. Um, you know, certainly never pushed anything that I didn't feel free to stomp on. Uh, and and there, I think it was in part because I had that trust relationship with Larry and Sergey that it allowed a lot of more autonomy than someone else new to the company or who didn't have that relationship probably couldn't have had. This episode is brought to you by a little sipper called Magic Mind. Ever wake up in the morning wondering, what am I doing with my life? Well, what you probably aren't doing is sipping on them Magic Minds. Magic Mind is a two-ounce shot, matcha, nootropics, adaptogens, functional mushrooms, everything in a morning ritual drink that you've ever wanted. You take it alongside your morning coffee or tea, and you get seven hours of creative, productive flow. It has 12 magical ingredients that all combine for everything you'd want in a shot. Energy, cognition, de-stressing, immunity support, everything in this two ounce beautiful shot that tastes delicioso so go check it out magicmind.co enter promo code btl that's btl for below the line for 20 percent off magicmind.co go check it out and get them sippers what were the what were how did those skills complement between you and rich what were the complementary skills if you were to you know, jot down the pros and cons. Yeah, of Rich has a PhD in computer science uh, um, and uh, is a very technically minded. He's an engineer. He um, uh, he loves all the gadgets. He has like he's always got five phones on him. He's and I'm the like, I don't I would rather not have a phone. I'm on no social media. I'm like a hermit. Um, but you know, and and Rich has been part of the startup ecosystem and uh, well regarded in that way. He had. Uh, a network at Google of people that he had uh, worked with because of Android and uh, and um, and and a unique deal flow as well because of his geographic location mm. uh, in Boston and Cambridge and uh, and his background and so forth and 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 I'm uh, kind of a you know a people person I like I certainly evaluate the companies but a lot of it is about who's running the company and it was very complimentary um, uh, it just worked uh, it's like it's hard to know why I'm trying to put words around it, but you know, when it clicks and you have good chemistry, so, you know, you like working with someone and you learn a lot. Like I learned a lot from rich and, uh, and, uh, um, yeah. And so, uh, they kind of let us off to the races, uh, and, um, and we set up the fund as a separate entity and, uh, and so forth. And, uh, uh, and met the criteria that I like, you know, laid out or suggested. And, and I still remember, the recruiter that we had hired to find this person asked me to meet with them uh, at um, the, the, the lobby of this hotel in Palo Alto where people would have like you know, snacks and stuff. And it's like, okay. So I went to meet and, and I said, oh, you know, we're, we, you know, this had been preceded by my saying, okay, we didn't find anyone. We're going to wrap up the search. Uh, and uh, she um, very, um, in a very specific way said, Bill, you're not cut out for this. Like, like I'm, I'm trying to do you a favor, like, let us find a, like a, a real candidate. Like, I know you want to put yourself forward and, and you're in way over your head, 
you'll never survive the politics here. You, you, you don't know anything about venture. It was very like, you know, and I was too naive and insecure to really push back and say like, what are you talking about? Like, why don't talk to me that way? Like, get out of here, yeah. <laughs> which is what, you know, which is, I think what, um, uh, you know, one might say now, but, uh, but at the time I was kind of like, okay, uh, I hear you. Uh, but you know, no one else is offering me this kind of opportunity. So like, I kind of have to say yes. So thanks for the input, I guess. And, um, <laughs> what did, what did, what uh, did so she I, mean I, by that uh, on the politics side and what do people mean with, with the when they talk about the internal politics of a company like i Google. think it's game it was it was and and uh, maybe still is it was a a game of thrones that was being played that i was oblivious to uh and had no interest in playing and people and just sabotage trying to torpedo other people's teams yeah it was it was it was positioning who can be closest to eric larry sergey who has their ear who uh yeah like you know who can build an empire who and you know, like, and, uh, and I just was oblivious to that and have no interest in it. Like I, I always kind of felt like, okay, well, this doesn't work or you don't want me here. Like <laughs> I can go back to Vermont. That's cool. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and so I think that detachment or being that unattached was a little bit threatening to, to one person in particular. Um, and, um, uh, and, and like I said, I was oblivious to that, that game. And so the more that I was relied on to, you know, I was on the board of Nest. I incubated Google X and Waymo and, uh, um, and I hired the CEO of Verily and incubated uh, Google Life Sciences. I, uh, you know, all of these things that like, I eventually like woke up and I was like, how did this happen? Like, how do I have yeah. my hand in everything here? Um, you know, the CEO of Chronicle, which was Google's... Um, uh, cybersecurity effort. I brought that person in. It was, you know, and, and so suddenly I found myself at the nexus of all these things. And I'm, you know, talking to CEOs of kind of other major tech companies on behalf of Google, like, Hey, Bill, like you have a good relationship with so-and-so. What could you go talk to them about this like major thing that's happening? And, um, there are a lot of good stories, but in respect to the privacy of certain individuals, I'll, I'll leave the names out, uh, Tell tell me tell me tell me at least tell us a wild story from that time of being this liaison between all of these uh, tentacles and and new frontiers. Yeah, Um, yeah. So I'll do. Yeah, it was like a big rift happened between Google and another large tech company, uh, and no one really had a good relationship with the leadership at that company. And so in a you know in a meeting, I was like, well. I know that person like I know them personally, not like professionally because I just run into them and stuff. And I just took it upon myself like, well, let me like, you know, talk like a human being. And so I just went over to this person's house with a bunch of like Ben and Jerry's. <laughs> it's like, hey, like, uh, let's have a conversation like this came up. Like, can I can I offer to have brunch you know, with you and, you know, Sergey or Larry and just get to know each other because it's much harder to like not get along when you actually know the person when you're behind a keyboard, it's like easy to, you know, like, like, like Twitter, it's easy to fire off like bombs into the internet and then you don't see the results. You know, it's like you get the endorphin rush of being like disruptive, like being the bad kid, but then you don't have to deal with the consequences, which is a very unnatural thing. And so it's like, well, maybe these companies get along better if you guys actually know each other. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, so there are multiple 
um, iterations of that with multiple different companies and organizations. And, and, you know, and then I found myself more and more going to Europe, like doing like, like talk to the leadership of this country about like, you know, Google's investments in startups and like how we can get involved and maybe you should start a venture fund for European startups. And, and so my, I suddenly like woke up and I'm like, you know, kind of this administrator of like all these different things and involved in so many things, which was really cool, but also really taxing, like really taking a lot out of you and, and not the thing that I started out to do. There. What, what part of it did you love doing that you're like, this is what I want to spend all my time doing. And what I mean, did honestly, you find yourself? Yeah. For me, like going over to Google X or some of the other projects and seeing all the cool stuff people are working on. It's like a kid in a candy store. It's like, you're this judge at the science fair where it's like, Oh my God, like you're, you're building a robot and you're thinking about like how we can like live forever. And you're like, and you're working on like stem cell technology and you're over here, like breeding mosquitoes to like do away with like dengue. Like there's like all kinds of um, interesting projects going on. And so that's the thing that, that I would miss uh, and that I do miss uh, the politics of it. Uh, just, I don't have any interest in, in that. I think, and I think it was, Every big company probably like suffers from that a bit. Yeah. Um, Airbnb, I, you know, Airbnb certainly does. At, at five thousand employees, I don't know how big Google was, but at five thousand employees, it was like everybody had enough information in their own minds to form judgment on different projects, and you'd see people just kind of try to torpedo, yeah, projects. Or it, it became uh, just managing the disparate psychologies on different teams just to incubate is a good is a good word for for new businesses you just had to like sit on top of these eggs and push back all of the uh all and of the Google's negative credit, energy and to google's credit it was a place that really started with yes which mm -hmm. is why is there you know why is there chrome and android and chromium and well because usually the answer is yes should we try this sure try it like and let's see if it works and and that's how sometimes you ended up with competing products or competing groups and then as people get more disconnected from each other, then you start to get into the politics uh, of, of, uh, of what you just described. Uh, and, um, and at its highest level, you know, I, I like woke up and found myself like, oh, I'm like suddenly like I'm one of the most senior execs at this, you know, like the world's second largest company. And I totally don't belong here. Like I, this is, uh, it's like, am I gonna wake up? And, and even now looking back, it seems like it was a dream. Like how did that, you know, how did that come to be? Like, did I really do all that? And was I involved in that? And it's, uh, so it's, it's very like, um, strange, uh, in that sense. And the thing that you miss are the relationships and the friendships that are built in a very unique moment in time. There's no going back, you know, it's sort of like Google was a different kind of company. The world was different. Its perception was different. The group of people that were there, you can't recreate that but you can go on to the next things and hope to have more moments like that. But that's the thing that you miss are, are the relationships and the, um, and the things that were really fun and exciting about it. There, there, you know, it was probably the highest percentage of fun and interesting things that I could imagine at any company, like working at someone else's company and a very small percentage of things that are like, ah, this is like driving me crazy. And once I got through that first year, it's like, oh, okay. Now I get what's. I think I'm starting to get what's going on here, and like how and how this works. It's it's cool to think about it, and it, it, the you know, it's the Greeks have two. They had two definitions of time: chronological time and eras. And it yep. sounds like 
Yeah, there's obviously the chronological time of the year, the years that you were there, but it was almost this era of your life. It sounds like that is so unique of all of these magical things happening. And that's what I wish. I wish that I had appreciated that then. And instead of just working so much, soaked in more learning, spent more time with the pe people that I was learning the most from and really appreciated the moment mm. because it goes by so fast, mm. which, you know, could probably say about this moment. But it's specifically looking at that, you know, I remember very clearly one point I went to Eric and said, Eric Schmidt and said, I want to offer this to a startup. I want them to be able to use our computers, you know, like our cloud to do some processing, meaning like uh, to, to um, kind of imagine folding of proteins in 3D space, which required a lot of computing power. Um, and, and that wasn't a product at the time, you know, that Google was really offering. Um, it was a long time ago in, in compute terms. Uh, and Eric's answer to me, which is, you, I don't think you get at most companies, that still stays with me. And it takes a lot of trust for a CEO to say to someone like me at the time, well, who's, who's telling you no? So why, are you ask, why are you asking me? Is someone saying no? It's like, if someone says no, then come to me. Till then, you do whatever you need to do to make this as successful as possible. Mm. Like that's an incredible... Uh, um, you know, Eric was a great CEO, great person to learn from. Uh, but that's like an incredible statement from someone in his position because that turns over a lot of trust. And then with trust comes, okay, now I have this authority. There's also responsibility that comes with that, i.e. don't screw it up. Yeah. Uh, and so I tried to always be very cognizant of that. And I think they knew that, that I was very careful with Google's name and like how or if people could use it and, uh, and, and you know, that sort of thing. Did so that that lesson really stuck with me. Like who's telling you no. And that's just a great lesson for life. Like, well, who's saying no, like, why, why are you limiting yourself? Yeah. Brian Chesky at Airbnb would say, don't edit your ambition. And yeah. it was similar. It was, he, he would say with the new business line and I worked on three different business lines right next to him. And, and he would say, come back with a plan and don't edit your ambition, which is yeah. Similarly, the exact opposite of what you would think um, because you just feel like, okay, this is my, you know, uh, ruffle feathers to do it this way or to go after this big thing. And, and uh, it's, it's like a parent saying go wild and right. you just don't yeah. expect you, your I authority. trust you. Yeah. Basically like saying, yeah, I trust you. And, and that there's no probably, you know, that's one of the most powerful things that someone can say uh, mm -hmm. to you, whether you're working for them or, you know, in a relationship of some kind or a parent is I trust you. Uh, and, uh, and yeah, it was, uh, it was, it was a, you know, you learn a lot in that experience that, you know, and, and I, I, it's like you observe that, okay, here, like I'm surrounded by some of the wealthiest people in the world. It's like, like, you know, and I'm not just talking about people at Google, like you run into these folks, you know, kind of in what I was doing. And it's like, Oh, like, I don't know that they have any better idea about what life is about you know, than I do. Like, you know, it doesn't make them any happier. And some, some are, and some do get it, but it has nothing to do with the, the wealth that they've created. Like there's a certain amount of it that makes you comfortable, of course, but then it's just keeping score. You're like, kind of like playing a game. Uh, and, uh, and that was also like a really big um, kind of lesson. They, everyone's got the same struggles, you know, whether they're health struggles or health struggles in their family or, you know, there are great equalizers in life. And, uh, and then you find out that like, kind of everybody's kind of a normal person in some way, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, so, so that was 
also something I really took with me. This is fascinating. And I want to go back to that question of what were some of the patterns that you saw as this outsider coming in and chatting with, I'm sure you were able to get the, the coffees with the best investors in the world. What are some of the patterns you saw in those first few months and years on the job and, and that you've taken away, but maybe just starting from the first few months and years on the job of, of the best investors, were there any patterns that you saw of what made great venture capital firms? Yeah, uh, for sure. And I think um, some of some of it's conventional wisdom and some of it's not. A yeah. big part of what makes a, a big, there's no, we did a lot of data analysis at Google eventually as we built out the team, brought on a lot of statisticians and machine learning people and built statistical models to study venture and outcomes across periods of time and run millions of simulations, billions of simulations across portfolios to see. And it turns out um, that that one thing that actually, there's no one thing that determines it. It's not geography, it's not, it's not, it's one com big component is that people who are successful venture capitalists tend to see a higher quality of deal flow, thus furthering the flywheel of them continuing to be successful venture capitalists. They, they get to be choosy mm. because, you know, once you've invested in Airbnb and Google and so forth, well, then you're a very desirable investor. So then you get to see, and so even if you're randomly, even if you have no skills at all, at all, and you're just randomly picking companies, you're picking for a much better subset of companies. Thus, you will continue to be uh, successful. One of the other insights is that great investors, who you know, great in this case defined as better than the 75th percentile, 75% of venture funds generally don't return capital uh, across time. So, so it became obvious in studying venture that if you just return the money that you invested, you're in the 75th percentile. And so that was kind of always a goal, which is like, okay, we're going to build our portfolio in such a way that we at least return capital. So we'll make a late stage investment that's maybe represents 30% of our capital uh, or a series of them. So that if it goes two or three X, we basically return the fund and everything else is our risk capital. Uh, and so, you know, the model, that's a very shorthand way of how the model, you know, kind of was built. Uh, and, uh, and that's your, you know, your alpha is comes from the higher risk stuff that you're doing. Uh, and, um, and so, yeah, so, uh, you know, there are a lot of, uh, kind of lessons that came, uh, from that, but there's no one formula. Like Mike Moritz was a, was a journalist before he was you know, Mike Moritz and, mm -hmm. and John Doerr was a salesman for Intel before he was, you know, John Doerr. And, uh, and then there are people across the board who are, who are business school graduates and some who weren't. And, and I think, um, luck plays a huge part in this. Like, mm -hmm. let's, let's be honest, like, obviously there's persistence. If you have persistence in being good, unlike in the mutual fund industry, where there's always a top 10%, it's rarely the same funds that are in the top 10% in the venture business it is very um, uh, common for the top funds to continue to be the top funds. Uh, and it has something to do with that, what I, you know, kind of that flywheel that I was, that I was talking about. But as I used to tell the folks at Google, like their luck is a huge part of this. Like, and, and I think many of them recognize it, that like nobody deserves $50 billion. Like nobody, nobody earns 50 or hundred billion dollars. You might have been given that opportunity and a, a world was created in which one or several people will be on this end of the bell curve that end up with that kind of wealth. And you may also have worked hard and you were incredibly lucky because there were people that worked hard that 
that work hard every day that will never, never see that. And so luck mm -hmm. is a part of it too, because, but for a couple of decisions, you know, like, well, what if you hadn't done this one investment or, uh, you know, if this company, you know, had tanked instead of, you know, then the world would look very different or your world would look very different. And so, you know, luck is a, is a big part of it as well. Uh, and so, and I don't want to discount that at all. It's not the only thing, but you know, the world is random sometimes and you got to recognize that. It's it, so random. I, I got into tech seemingly similar to you. It just, it was totally with our study development economics. Didn't think that I would get into, I didn't know what a startup was in 2008, 2009. It's, uh, it is totally, and, but had the financial crisis not happened, then I probably would have said, okay, well, maybe I'll go into investment yeah. banking. And had I not taken this random job in New York City, which I really disliked from day one, I would not have met Anne. Would I ever met, have met Larry and Sergey? I would have had no connection to who knows what. Mm. Maybe it would have gone some other crazy, exciting way, you know, hopefully. But randomness is a big part of it. I mean, speaking of randomness, my first day at Google, I sit down at this desk in open space and make friends with this guy sitting next to me who's like denied. Um, uh, uh, a promotion uh, for whatever reason is like not technical enough or some Google nonsense at the time. So he's working on an app of his own uh, called Bourbon. Uh, and I was like, oh, that's interesting. And then he's like, I'm going to leave and work on this uh, full time. And I was like, really? You're gonna, you've got this job in corporate development at Google? Like, but this, like you sure? And, and he was like, yeah. And he really believed. And that's Kevin Systrom who started mm -hmm. Instagram. And so it's like randomly just I mean, my career is really randomly sitting next to people. It's basically, yeah. uh, you know, I sat next to Anne, sat next to Kevin, and uh, and uh, you know, and these are just normal people where where you know things come together, and 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 part of it is going to the place where the, the, these things happen. Right. Like I was going to say part of it is luck, but you're also it's like a surfer that keeps finding good waves. You can't you can't uh, just chalk it all up to luck. What what were some of the pieces of advice that you got from those? That's so fascinating. I feel, it's such a cool experience to imagine being from Google, st standing up Google Ventures and knocking on the doors of some of the best investors in the world that are in that you know ten mile radius. Were, was there any advice that you got along the way that that turned out to be true? And you're like, damn. That was really good advice three years ago when so-and-so said, you know, X to me over coffee when it came to venture investing. You know, I'll, I'll just, I will say that Mike Moritz and Mark Andreessen, and Mark was starting Andreessen Horowitz at the time, uh, right around the same, you know, right, kind of shortly after we started Google Ventures, have been, were, and continued to have been incredibly generous with their time and insights when they would have no reason to, like very little to gain. You know, Mike Moritz was not on the board of Google anymore, but for reasons that remain a mystery to me, has always been very kind and very generous with his time and insights and uh, and advice on how to structure, you know, practical stuff. Yeah, please share, share, share yeah. yeah. How what, to structure carried interest. Like, what do you pay a venture capitalist? Like, what, what do you, you know, what did he how, say? And what do you pay a venture capitalist? Well, I can't. I can't disclose the compensation structures of uh, of uh, any of my former uh, uh, employers or so forth. But 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 it comes down to a percentage of the profits, right? It you or and if there are no profits, there's no percentage. Like you get you get nothing, and so so you should be willing to bet on that. 
and not really care much about salary to the extent that like you need salary to like buy groceries and and that kind of thing yes but like beyond that the business is really about building really big companies uh and um and then if they are successful that means they're having a big commercial or otherwise other impact in the world and that will be measured by the outcomes that you generate and so to me capital was always a lever to accomplish things it's like oh here's Google with a lot of capital and I'm like a plumber. It's like, okay, I'll take this over here and plug it in here and hopefully generate some change. And like, um, and you know, you push on that lever and that's why I always was interested in investing a lot of our dollars into healthcare and the life sciences, because it's like, even on their worst day, hopefully those companies are doing something good for the world uh, and good for people and good for sick people. And, you know, and I always, I'd wanted to be a doctor, like in college, I was like pre-med and thought, I go on to medical school and it, I just never ended up pursuing that. Uh, it, you know, it, I decided I would take a year off and then I got this job in New York and I just never went back, but it was a way to have a very leveraged, hopefully small, but leveraged influence in the world of healthcare to try and accelerate some medicines and technologies that would help people. Um, and so, so yeah, they were, you know, there's practical advice that was given and then just, you know, just advice like, Hey, yeah, that's a really hard business. It's like hard to recruit people and you won't know for a few years if they're any good at it. Like, you know, it takes $50 million to train a venture capitalist because they're going to make a series of investments that probably won't work out at first until they learn, you know, a number of, uh, of hard lessons. Wow. I've uh, never, I've never heard it articulated with a, a number like yeah, that, yeah, but it no, is. That's a, that's a, that's a saying is that, that it takes, you know, some millions of dollars to, to train a VC because, um, it, you know, there's no, there's no school for it. It's sort of like kind of on the job training and like, you know, uh, you have to generate your own deal flow. It's a very solitary business in a sense. It's not a team sport, mm -hmm. you know, like it's, it, it can be practiced a little bit like that, but at the end of the day, you're trying to work with an entrepreneur on their company. It doesn't really matter what the name of the firm is, et cetera. You know, people want to work with Mike or they want to work with Reed Hoffman or they want to, you know, it doesn't matter what firm they're at. Mm -hmm. Uh, no one wants to work with Greylock. Like that doesn't do anything for anyone or Google Ventures or whatever. It's like, who's the person who's going to be giving you advice and on your board? And so, so I, you know, and Eric, and Eric was a great uh, advisor and Eric Schmidt and, uh, and, and Bill Campbell, who um, was a, a, a great friend and advisor as well. And so, so I was very fortunate in that my approach, I was very fortunate and my approach was to just be nice to everyone because like, it doesn't cost anything. And some people that gets you nowhere they're just not nice and it doesn't matter it's like okay so you're not nice it wouldn't matter if i was nice or not but most people hopefully are nice and then you build a relationship with them or they you know want to help you in return and you help them with things and and then i would just go to each of these people and say great meeting you who are the like two or three other people that i could learn from that you think i should meet i tried to end every meeting early on with that and then that would set my agenda for the next week let me go meet those two, two or three people. And then suddenly you've met a hundred people in venture and, and, you know, it sounds really kind of uh, maybe prosaic or silly, but it's like being nice can go a long way because um, uh, it's just also makes your life so much easier. Once told me never underestimate the propensity for people to never underestimate the power um, of the propensity for people to want to see you succeed. And it's being nice, people wanting to see you succeed in these small or big ways is, yeah, it's, it, it's it, you know, being nice is is not just, 
it's not just an attitude. It's falling into the good graces of someone wanting to see you succeed or make that connection just, the next week. And that's just it. Like, I, yes, I worked hard. Yes, I, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And there were some people that were really generous with their time and their insights and their advice. And uh, when they didn't have any real reason to be other than they were just being nice. Uh, and so, so it's like, and then you have to return that. So like, I try to do the same thing, uh, you know, to the extent that I can, uh, when people are asking me those same mm -hmm. questions now, and it's like, I don't feel like a different person. I mean, I've done a bunch of stuff and I have a bunch of experience, but it's like, it still feels kind of inadequate, like, but you know, but, um, but you do, you know, do the best you can. And, you know, like you said, you, the server, you know, the server who finds keeps finding the good waves. Well, just keep putting yourself in opportunity rich environments and then try to make the most of those opportunities. And I missed a lot of good investments. I missed a lot of good hires that I could have made. I mean, you know, I look back and I think, oh, there's a, there's a million ways I could have made that so much more successful. Walk me through one of them. Uh, I want you to finish your, uh, finish the, I was, the yeah, point. Just to finish but that it, thought, yeah. It's like you, you sort of like, um, if you put yourself in those opportunity rich environments, uh, you're, it was never, I was never gonna go anywhere professionally in Vermont. It's like, put yourself in, and I think, you know, in the space or the place where stuff is happening. And at that time it was tech and it was Google. And and find a way to be useful. Like, you know, do something interesting. And if it, was, if it wasn't gonna be Google Ventures or a start a venture fund, like I thought I was hiring someone to run the job, run the thing. So it's like, well, I'll just work here or I'll go find something else interesting. And I think Mark Andreessen's advice from a few weeks ago that I read is, seems correct to me, which is you can, well, I'll, I'll adapt it, but you can follow your passion, but don't expect your passion to be tied to financial or other rewards. It should be fulfilling in and of itself, or your passion should be your hobby. And your work should be the thing that you are either really good at, or you can learn a lot at, or where there's a lot of activity happening. and find a way to be useful in that space. Mm -hmm. That's very different than the general advice, which is like, find something you love and like, you'll never work a day in your life. And it's like, well, what if you love music and you're just like not that good at it? Or even if you're really great at it, there's not a lot of money in music, you know, for like very talented musicians. It's like, mm -hmm. okay, be okay with that. But I think we don't do a good job as a culture, like making that clear that like, you know, art and, and, and passion is not necessarily tied to um, the kinds of, uh, uh, you know, professional success or, uh, financial rewards or, um, uh, or learning, et cetera, They're, they can be very different things. Uh, and so I think Mark's advice from a blog post I saw a couple of weeks ago, uh, is right, which is like, you know, well, he said, don't follow your passion or something to that effect. I'm saying, well, at least know if you're following that, that's very different than kind of, um, what I was trying to do, which is put myself in the middle of like, whatever's happening and see if I could like be useful and learn something doing that. I never aspired to be a venture capitalist. Like that was not like a career decision, but here I am. Right. Well, the, I want to talk about what with a, such a future oriented education and, and environment to build out Google ventures. The, I want to talk about some of the, the trends and things that you're thinking about with your own firm now and and also want to talk to you about what it's been like starting your own firm but is there are there things that now you if you were being if i was asking you okay i'm getting into venture what are the things that 
what are the arcs, the learning arcs that I'm going to go through? And, and I was surveying you, you now, you know, over a decade into it, what is that advice that you impart to, uh, to younger investors that are curious and the, the pieces of, yeah, please. It is so completely different now than it was even when I started doing this in 2007, it's like 2008, whenever it was, uh, it, there's so many different funding sources. There's so many more startups. There's so many other ways to learn and be involved in the business. It's not just about getting a job at one of these kind of five or 10 venture funds on Sand Hill Road. It's like the number of times, if you were to graph the number of times I've, I heard the term Sand Hill Road from 2007, you know, it sort of like right. goes like this. Uh, and um, because it's not centralized anymore, like most things on the internet, it's, you know, there's angel investors. There's, you know, every time a company goes public, a tech company, it's like, oh, a thousand more angels were just created. There's different ways to get involved. There's Y Combinator, there's Techstars, there's, um, you know, uh, and then there's there's micro funds, there's like, you know, growth funds. It's become this full blown ecosystem that did not exist not that long ago. And so, um, you know, I think the general advice would be work at a startup and, and or find a way to be useful and productive at a venture fund. But those are few and far between opportunities. They're, you know, they're hard to get because there's not a lot of those jobs. But then again, you know, I found my way into one. I wasn't even looking for that job. It was like, you know, um, and I don't know that being a venture capitalist is something to aspire to. Like I, like I said, it's not like I can only give advice from my own experience. I didn't aspire to it. I don't like. Do you even today? Do that you, I'm, yeah. Do you even today? That I am one. Yeah. Like, like it's, it's, and I am, it, that's the label that gets put on it, but I love the people that I'm working with. I like the work. I like learning. Uh, I like working with startups and there are many other things I also like. Uh, so, so it's not like to the exclusion of all things. It's like, oh, this is the thing that we're talking about. And maybe I'm known for in some ways, um, but it's just one dimension of a thing. And there are lots of other ways to get involved with startups now. Uh, you know, um, like, uh, you could even just go to like a um, kind of shared office space and start talking to people and you're going to meet startup people. That wasn't a thing back then. You go to like Coupa Cafe in Palo Alto, but that didn't exist in other cities and it does now. And so um, I think uh, there are a lot of ways to learn about uh, uh, startups and, and investing and, and so forth. But, you know, allocating capital is not in and of itself uh, glamorous or even something to aspire to. Do, you, do you think that's, somehow foundationally made you good at the job if it's not this attachment to this uh, prestigious thing that you you want to do really well yeah yeah i think so i think i think the more unattached you are in life in general uh, which is something that i'm constantly working on probably the better uh you know it's a very zen kind of i do a lot of meditation it's a very like um uh um I think that's the right approach because if you can make more clear-minded decisions, if you're not attached to the, to the outcome. And of course you might have an outcome in mind. Like I want these companies to be successful, et cetera. But if it all went away and I, you know, for, I was like somehow, uh, you know, uh, not able to be a venture investor anymore. It's like, there are many other things that life is, is full of. And that's why I think it's really, like I was saying, it's really wise to know what your passions and interests are. Um, and I was never passionate about startups or venture, like newsflash. I'm not like passionate about venture. Like 
doing deals like that, that, that seems like, how could that possibly be something that like excites someone? It does some people, but for me, it's not about competition to get the deal, et cetera. It's, um, it's about building something, whether it was Google ventures or section 32, it's about building a company or my company before that, or, you know, it's like putting together a team and working towards a goal. And I like venture because it's very measurable as to whether you've been successful or not. Like, did you do a good job? And I kind of want to know, like, did we do a good job at that? And, um, and so that, that's appealing. And so this is where I found myself, but, um, uh, but it's not to the exclusion of everything else in life. Yeah. Tom, uh, I was listening to a conversation with this comedian, Tom Segura, and he was saying that he, he was saying in the, in the conversation, in the, in the podcast that he never thought him, he never saw himself as being a stand up comedian. He came to LA to be a comedic actor and he still thinks 10 years in, 15 years in, he's like, when I'm on the road doing a tour and it could be selling out, headlining and massive theaters. And in my head, I still think this is wrong. Like this isn't yeah. what I really felt the calling to. This was the, the side gig that ended mm -hmm. up doing well. And, and it's, I'm, it's interesting to hear you, you say something and it, it, but then he followed up and saying, I think that gave him a lot of detachment a lot of freedom because he just felt like I can de develop my own style. It's just going to be this tiny little thing in a dark corner that people aren't really yeah. going to see or that I'm, I'm completely unattached to it. I'm, this is the thing I'm doing now and there will come a time where it's not the thing I'm doing anymore. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's one thing that I'm doing, but there are other things I do that are more important. I'm a dad, you know, that's like way more important. Uh, and, uh, and there are other things in life. So, you know, that day will come. And, but in the meantime, like, when I do a thing, I want to try and do it as well as possible. Like, I don't want to give the impression that it's like, oh, like if luck is a big part of it and, you know, I don't know what I'm doing, but you know, that, that's all true. But it's also like, well, when I'm doing a thing, like I get very focused on trying to do it, you know, at a high level. And it's like, if it became clear, I can't perform at a high level, then it's like, well, then this isn't getting you to work harder or this isn't the thing. And then your perspective changes over time. You know, when you're, for me, when you're in your twenties, you don't have a family, you, you know, you can focus solely on work, uh, et cetera. Then, you know, priorities change as you have kids and uh, you think about life and how you're spending your time and and uh, and how much time is left and, you know, what kind of impact are you trying to make and, uh, and uh, you know, what is the quality of that time that you're spending? Uh, you know, you evolve as a person. And so the advice you might give someone in their 20s might be very different from the advice you give someone in their 40s, for example. Mm -hmm. We've chatted about detachment a, a few times. You mentioned um, meditating. Is do you have a foundational, uh, spiritual, philosophical practice? Yeah, I do. Um, I um, I don't know how deep you want to go on this, but uh, I, but I it's called below the line. So we want to go as deep as as honestly deep as as you're willing to share. I think it's yeah, far absolutely. more interesting to people than than uh, guests might might think because so many listeners. I know. I I hear from them all the time so many listeners founders are going through intense intense shit when they just pop on yep. an episode so yeah please tell me i found a lot of meaning uh and um uh depth in uh kind of studying listening to you know whether it's headspace or it's sam harris or um or other meditative practices, uh, and even um, plant medicines, uh, um, uh, uh, 
uh, you know, I guess you would call them psychedelics or um, uh, psilocybin um, when, and that sort of thing. Yeah, when tell me about your experience with with those. Yeah, I think there's a, something very, you know, and I not really, uh, uh, how can I describe it? There's something for those who know, you know, and those who are curious, you can find out there's a, you know, there's a book Michael Pollan wrote called um, Changing Your it's called Changing Your Mind, How to Change Your Mind, um, which I think I would recommend. Uh, and, I re- and Sam Harris's uh, podcast, as well as his app, Waking Up, are, you know, there's a lot to learn there. And there's something very interesting and sacred about some of, um, I think, the insights that can be garnered about yourself and about the, the world kind of exploring that dimension, kind of the, the spirit dimension, uh, as opposed to the, you know, the head dimension and kind of more dropping into um, uh, um, that world of spirit. And I'm not talking about like Christianity or Judaism or any of that. I'm just talking about the world of spirit, like kind of the, 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 the energy that, that uh, I think um, uh, is deeper than uh, you see on the surface of, of life. And I think you, there's a lot of, uh, peace and insight that can be garnered by kind of looking inward, uh, in that way, which is not something I really was aware of in my twenties when it was all about like this and working as hard as you could and, and going nonstop. Uh, and like I said, you evolve, like you have kids and you start to think about mortality and your part in the cycle and kind of where you fit. And, and so those have been very meaningful, um, uh, and deep experiences. Can, could you give a, a specific interaction and experience with, with psychedelics that has shifted your, your viewpoint? And, and I, it's one of the things that I know in, in a prior conversation of ours that, that I'd love to chat with you about during this, this episode is around mental health, but yeah, do you mind giving yeah. the, the most yeah, yeah. Ex- explicit of details that you, that you wouldn't mind sharing and I'll share my experience as well. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 yeah, it's funny because we're having a conversation, and I'm mindful of the fact that there might be you know thousands of other people uh, listening. But I, I at least like speaking for myself, um, uh, you know, I had done a lot of research and reading and studying, but none of that can really do justice to or even begin to paint the picture of what an experience like that is like or what it might open up. Uh, and it's almost like if you'd never had ice cream. And it's like, well, let me, you can read as many books as you want about what vanilla ice cream tastes like, but it's like, oh, actually tasting it is a completely different thing. Uh, and, um, and it's not something that I would, you know, recommend or, you know, it's like one thing I have done, uh, and am interested in, um, and, uh, sort of, it, it opens a door to, I think, uh, uh, a realm of spirit that, you know, uh, I didn't know really existed before, uh, where, where you kind of, once you kind of unlock your mind from some of these default mode, the default thinking modes that exist, uh, and, um, uh, you can see the world and understand things in a way that maybe, uh, you couldn't before. And none of this is, this is a very inarticulate way of saying something I think that, that is in the zeitgeist right now. It's like lots of people are trying microdosing and, and have, you know, kind of exploring uh, this, this realm. Uh, and, and I think it is interesting what you mentioned that, that, you know, we have a complete crisis of mental health 
probably in the world, but certainly in this country with essentially no resources for anyone. Uh, then there's a lot of people that need help. And it's a real shame that, that it's taken us this long to come back to things like psilocybin and ketamine and other, other um, uh, um, kind of uh, medicines that, that seem to be far more effective at treating some of these conditions than the traditional pharmaceutical, you know, you know, pharmaceutically produced uh, antidepressants and so forth. And we lost decades when uh, when they were kind of uh, uh, pushed aside and labeled as you know, you know, Schedule One controlled substances and so forth. And uh, and it's just uh, I'm not saying anything novel here. You know, it's like it's non-addictive. It's actually kind of anti-addictive. It does no damage to your brain. In fact, it can really help a lot of people. Um, and 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 sort of, you know, if you imagine the way of thinking, maybe it's a bunch of uh, ski slopes that are worn into a mountain. It like, it, I think in some cases it allows. I think maybe Michael Pollan said it allows like a new fresh snow to fall, and maybe find some new ways of thinking about the world or yourself that might be a lot healthier than the ones that you grew up with or that you learned or things that you tell yourself, you get to tell yourself a different story about, um, about yourself and who you are. Uh, and I think that's something a lot of people would benefit from. And it's one of those things when you have an experience like that, for me, I sort of think, I've thought to myself, God, everyone needs to do this. Um, and, you know, in the right way, um, but, uh, but very, very powerful experiences. I don't think I could do justice to it verbally and if you've had those experiences maybe that resonates with you. it yeah it absolutely doesn't it's in and i'd say uh absolutely take it as seriously as you would take any medicine and consult uh your doctor not like before you pop supplements <laughs> consult your doctor but truly bring your doctor with you know into the conversation because it it can be dangerous for some but it's yeah, and find a guide like look i'm not trying to give any Full disclaimer, I'm not giving anyone advice. I'm talking about my right. own experiences. So don't try to get in touch with me and tell me, but that or blame it, me or whatever. But that is what it feels like. It's, it is this, it's, it's not the advice that's being given of everybody should try, but it is like tasting vanilla ice cream and you're like, whoa, that exists? Yeah. And you look to your left and to your right and the people mm -hmm. to your left don't know that, that it exists. The people to your right, um, don't know that it exists and and yes it is part of the zeitgeist to talk about being in an era right now it's so cool just to even say like oh this is this is nothing novel because yeah. five years ago this would be one of the more novel yeah. things that anyone could discuss publicly super uh, yeah it was like very much um kind of like under the radar and all that and so glad light is being put on it and that's why i'm happy to talk about it because truly you know, apart from having children or maybe up there with having children, one of the most, pro, you know, maybe the most profound experience of my entire life. And so, um, and uh, very, very powerful and, and healing and helpful. And um, I mean, we could spend a lot of time and people have spent a lot of time talking about those things and, and uh, the experiences, but, um, but getting back to your point of this mental health crisis, um, you know, it's real and like mental health is a really important thing and, uh, we should use all the tools we can to help people because mental suffering is awful and we have provide no help to people in this country 
for it. I heard a, a, a stat I mentioned on the podcast before that during during the first 12 months of the COVID lockdown, one in 11 individuals uh, contemplated suicide in America. I hadn't heard that, but that's, you know, to the point. It is. I mean, it's every everyone listening to this is going to see 30 people at minimum today, if not 100. That means that you're walking by interacting with three people, four people, five people that in the last year had had contemplated suicide. It's my um, my mother is bipolar and and one of my brothers has bipolar and runs in the family. And my sister, um, she took her own life from from uh, mental illness, from uh major depression and and i these points are are worth underscoring again and again because it is this this epidemic that is now more deadly than all violent conflict in the world violent conflict and violent crime i think it was 2015 if not 2015 2017 is when uh self-harm um death by self-harm became more uh, was more catastrophic to the world globally than all violent crime and conflict uh, combined. It's yeah. so it's it is this thing that is hidden in plain sight. That if it was novel, if it start if this this thing started in you know February of twenty twenty, we'd all be talking about it. But we've yeah, just been silently living with it for... It's funny the things we come to tolerate. You know, 30,000, 40,000 people a year die in car crashes, you know, suicide. And, and, and that's, those are the people that actually go through with it. Mm-hmm. There's a much larger number of people who would try or who think about it, who are suffering. Uh, and, and, and like you said, you walk by them every day. And so, and, and that's, you know, we're all looking for, whether we know it or not, some, some kind of connection. Like we're social creatures and... Uh, and, and a sense of belonging and a sense of peace. And I think some of these medicines are tools that can really help some people kind of find that uh, and, and ask the right questions and, uh, and kind of get, start to get a sense of what priorities should be. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, the world is a mess right now of, uh, of a lot of dissonance and disconnection. And, uh, and like I, you know, we talked about earlier, like sending you know, messages over the internet and being nasty in ways that you would never be to someone's face. And, uh, and, uh, and I think it would, you know, I have, I think it makes sense to start to return to some kind of like spiritual practice and ask yourself some questions and, and explore that realm uh, as much as we've, you know, time as I put into exploring kind of other realms uh, in the, you know, this, this world. Do you think as an investor, um, I want, I want to, also ask you about other trends and just things that you think about as someone that invests in, and has an influence in the bleeding edge of technology. But within the mental health crisis, is there, we fast forward 50 years, 75 years, do you think there's anything bigger happening right now than the welcoming of, of psychedelic medicine for, for mental health and for, for people you can check out the the episode we did with Rick Doblin from Maps. The statistics around its efficacy is just yeah, it's outrageous. Um, and yeah, that's what there are people far more articulate on these topics than me. And sounds like you've talked to them. And so, um, so yes, that's exactly my point. Uh, is the work that they're doing really shines a light on it. So. 
do you th are there other technological is this a is this a uh, passion area of yours or is this a, also a commercial area from the it's investing perspective more and more those things are the same i'm trying to spend my time on it to to the degree i can to make sure they are the same thing and uh because there are areas of great commercial promise that are really also important to the world. I've tried to do that my whole career, but more and more I'm trying to do that. And so uh, we have barely scratched the surface of understanding the brain. You know, I have a degree in neuroscience that's like ancient history now, um, but we still don't know much more than we knew then into how the brain works and and what constitutes consciousness and what makes a living thing a living thing and uh, and um, and kind of what's our you know what's our place in all of it and i think that these medicines are important tools in that as to what you know what they lead to and so forth well it'd be nice to at least have an open mind to these you know which can have a huge and massive impact uh and hopefully that will lead uh you know lead to more but you know that's you start to ask yourself these existential questions and it's like you know well you know this if you if you mapped time on a football field 100 yards you know and it's sort of like um uh you know plants show up at like the three yard line you know it's like and like humans show up you know we've been around like two million years we show up at like half an inch from the you know it's Whoa. like we've barely been here you know and and then the universe is so vast you know there's millions of stars in this galaxy there's you know and there's billions of galaxies and so forth and it's like well are we just lucky on this planet? Like, what, what is our what is our place, you know, in all of it? And and so, you know, we start to think about those things, and it's like, well, we really only seem to have each other. So, like, and this planet, like, that's kind of all we've got. And so, so addressing some of these problems, like mental health and the sense of disconnection, and getting people connected. Yes, it would be nice to find opportunities that are supportive of that, and why I'm really supportive of not an investor in any of the companies that are commercializing psychedelics, but I'm very supportive of the, of the work. And in some ways, you know, wish I, wish I was. So, um, uh, yeah, I, I think, uh, I, th I hope we enter an era of really taking mental illness seriously as a problem because it is an epidemic and it also affects other people when people who mm. are not well, decide to hurt other people, you know, the, the, the tools that, that are available to them to hurt other people are becoming more and more powerful. So it's not just a stick or a rock or even a gun or now a semi-automatic or an automatic weapon. The tools for people who are not well can look like the, you know, the, the perfect pathogen, you know, let's say a H5N1, which has a 60% mortality rate. But if it were as infectious as the Delta variant and airborne. Well, if 30% of people, you know, this was the most benign pandemic you could imagine, right? Terrible, but also the most benevolent virus. So, so very low mortality rate uh, overall. And of course, disclaimer, too many people died. They didn't need to. Lots of those people could have, if we had done things differently, that's a whole other conversation. Um, but, but a very benign pandemic. Let's imagine that like SARS was 10% mortality, MERS was about 30%, and H5N1 is 60%. Well, at 30% or 20% mortality, the power grid goes down. Like people aren't showing up to work. Society crumbles, right? Like 
the normal ways of, you know, the food, you know, the, we had like this tiny little pandemic, very benign. And like, there was a moments where we were like, are we going to run out of food? Like, like, should we stockpile food? Like, so, and, and, oh, and wow. so I, imagine so we're much. You're saying that it, it, if it's, if it has a 20% mortality rate, then the people that are working on the energy grid or that are delivering, they're like, fuck this. I'm not, gonna, I'm not going to deliver. I'm either, not going to work. They're either going to be exposed and die because they're out there or they're just not going to show up because who wants to take that chance that you're going to die? And so at a certain percentage mortality, society kind of shuts down. Civilization ends. Like what? And so we need to take that very seriously, whether it's a natural born pathogen or it's bioterrorism or it's someone who's not well, it is in our best interest to take care of each other and and understand you know why people feel a certain way and and not let those tools fall into the to the wrong hands and so i think all of this is in service to like the fact that like we're this tiny little grain of sand in the universe and like we don't have any other place to go we only have each other and so so it would make sense to try and take care of each other uh and of course there's bad people in the world and and so forth and and we should address that. Um, but a lot of it has to do with what people are taught, that they're not well, they're having a hard time. Uh, and that goes, you know, even beyond the the empathy you feel when it's like, well, how is this person homeless? Like, how do we allow that? Like, this is someone's, this was once someone's baby. Like someone's like precious child is now like, like, so there are, there are, yes, I would like my practice of work to, you know, to, to try to address some of those things because there are existential extinction level threats, whether it's bioterrorism, climate change, mental health, uh, um, et cetera. There's a lot, um, a lot of work to do, uh, which is one of the reasons that I keep doing it. Yeah. I think that that is a extremely salient point. The more connected, the more hyper-connected we are, the more a mental health crisis that is at the scale that it's at. There's a stat from a 2018 study in Australia um, a 30-year study that that said that it is um, the it, we've conventionally said one in five will deal with a mental health crisis this year, and uh, the stat over this long term, yeah, it's probably much higher. And the stat in this long term study said that 74% of adults will have a life interrupting mental health crisis. Yeah, and that's 74%. That's basically everybody is going to hit be hit directly. Yeah very directly or indirectly you know, you, with this you know spouse you know who would brother. benefit you know who would benefit from therapy everyone mm -hmm. like it's just a fact and 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 um we're in the i'm going to borrow a phrase from david Sachs, uh who's an investor at craft ventures which is it seems sometimes like we're in a race between the the acceleration and success of technological advancement and the deterioration of our social and political systems which are happening at the same time and at both at accelerating rates because the more the tools of social networking, et cetera, been out there, which can do a lot of good, um, they've been deployed without regard to their amplifications, their um, responsibilities that the companies and the people who own and run them should have uh, and, and what they're amplifying and, and how they're affecting young people and kids and grownups as well and, uh, and so forth. And, and, you know, it's like if you grew up in a small community, a neighborhood, and you behaved badly, someone in that neighborhood, you know, 
would know and they might scold you or they might tell your parents or they might punish you or they might be like, dude, why did you put a rock through the window of my car? Like, you're going to have to fix that now because I know you or I heard you said such and such. Well, we're in the society now where where we can all talk to each other. So in some sense, it's like a big community, but uh, but it's very sociologically like disconnected from the consequences of what people say or do. And and that's scary because that's, you know, that's not, that's cyberbullying and more. That's like, oh, you can get on the internet and say any nasty thing that you want. And, you know, uh, and people do it all the time. And then you're disconnected from the consequences of it. And that's unnatural. That's not how we evolved. You, you should be connected to the consequences of the things you do. And that is worrisome because it creates more mental dissonance. People are unhappier. There's more mental health challenges and so forth. And it doesn't have to be that way. And I'm concerned that the more that that happens and the more available the tools of even biology are to everyone, that someone who isn't well or feels that they want to um, lash out in some way could do something that could affect not just a few people or a few hundred people, but millions of people. Mm -hmm. uh, and we should all be a lot more concerned about that and taking action on it than we have been. And that's, again, probably a topic for another day. It gets into bioterrorism and all kinds of things, but, but mental health is a big piece of it. And we're doing a terrible job taking care of each other right now. It is. And as the adage goes, hurt people, hurt people. So it's, it's something that there is this foundational layer that we're not taking. I don't think I've ever, I don't think I've ever heard anyone on this podcast talk about the mental health connection to the horrific things that that we're seeing throughout the country throughout the world and it's, it's so much easier to just demonize someone as they're evil they're a monster etc and and i get it like if you've been hurt by someone like that i i get it trust me and they're suffering too and if we can intervene or help those people before they get to that point that is worthwhile we spent $4 trillion at least on COVID and counting. Um, we're investing almost nothing uh, in, in some of these other areas where the outcomes could be far, far worse. Uh, and, and we're doing a terrible job taking care of each other. You know, like that, that, that's what it is at the, at the end of the day is, is we should be looking out for each other. And when you're in a, a tribe or a small community, you have to to make sure that that saber-toothed tiger doesn't get you. Uh, and we're, it seems like we're just moving to a society where everyone's looking out for themselves. And I also get that, but I, I, you know, we can change that and we should change that. Yeah, the, a great thought experiment that, well, a thought, I don't know if it's great, but a thought experiment that I've been relaying in my mind, uh, replaying in my mind over and over again is, if we were to fast forward a thousand years, America's only gonna exist for a couple hundred years. And it's just, there'll be too many forces of nature that will say, okay, something else look, will rise. We, look, humans have been around 2 million years. The dinosaurs were around 100, 200 million years, 180 million years. So, so like, you know, the jury's out on whether in much less America, much less humans will be around. But yes, right. I agree. Well, and, and it's, if we were to jump a thousand years forward and look back and say, let's say we try to see this society uh, in this time in the most the most um, amazing light possible, a uh, scion of, of culture, almost the Atlantis of, 
of the 21st century over the next hundred years, what would that society look like? And it would look like one that goes to extreme lengths to care for everyone around. That would be that would be just as uh, as generous and adoptive of new new technology because of the understanding of all of these problems that are hidden in plain sight, but also just as radically oriented to the um, these subtle but powerful ripples that are happening through it our would society. Be based, it would be one that looks a lot more like Star Trek. It would be one based on the idea of taking care of each other and first principles of, of hey, all children deserve health care and, and, and top-notch health care and you know, clean water and healthy food. All children deserve that. And everyone, everyone who wants one should be entitled to an education. Like, like we should be able to agree on these basic things. And if we don't agree, then, then clearly not communicating well enough, like what that actually means, Mm -hmm. because that can only benefit all of us. And, and meanwhile, society is devolving into every person for themselves and arguing and dissonance and what's, you know, what's going to get the, you know, the soundbite and so forth. And so that's why I'm super appreciative of a conversation like this, where it's like, oh, there can actually be nuance and we can talk about things. And it's not, you know, looking for that 15 second or five second clip. Um, uh, and it's unfortunate we can fix that. And, and I, I'm hopeful that we will, because um, I try to be optimistic about that. Yeah. Well, Bill, man, we were only scratching the surface of so many things. We'll have to have a part two, uh, have you back on the podcast. So many other things that we didn't discuss, but I love that this was uh, the least venture conversation with an intercapitalist. That is a welcomed uh, change. And I think it's something that these are these are things that that are, like we said, they're foundational to the worlds we live in and the, the families that we're in, the people that are around us, everyone listening to this has someone that is indirectly or is directly impacted by uh, something like a mental health crisis where you're not talking about, and this is a company that I'm investing or this is a space that technology is where AI is going to dot, dot, dot. This is just a, just two humans talking about the world and the problems that exist. I'm never interested in talking about individual company. Like you can go to our website and look at, I don't, I don't want to talk about the companies. It's really about, you know, I'm much more interested in having a real conversation about the fact that like, you know, uh, that the, the world's a mess right now. Uh, and you know, we're all part of it. Uh, and there are real things that we can do. And I'm trying to do at least my little part with whatever tools and, you know, gears I can turn and, and whatnot to help. Um, but it's it's not on any one person, and so yeah, no, I'm super appreciative of the of the conversation, and um, uh, and yeah, we barely scratched the surface. So I'll I'll try not to spend the next couple of weeks thinking about oh, I should have said that thing. Oh or no, why didn't I talk no, about this that? is but, awesome. This is awesome, um, and it's. But if you know me at all, I will do uh, that anyway. Well, there you go. For part two, you'll come you'll come with a ream of things, and we'll and we'll rifle through. But this is uh, this is fantastic conversation, and I think it's a. Um, the, I think touching on these different points is so they need to be discussed more so that people can think about the solutions. And, and as I've said many times that more founders would, would benefit from being problem obsessed instead of solution obsessed and investors are so solution obsessed, companies obsessed, trend line obsessed instead of foundational problem uh, obsessed. So I, I love that this conversation revolved around that. Appreciate that. Yeah. Thank you. And then, and if and when, whether on this podcast or on our own, we want to have a deeper conversation about 
plant medicines and those particular experiences, um, I'd be happy to do that. Uh, super, uh, like I said, very profound. And, uh, and that's kind of like leads you to like, uh, to like, yeah, we only have each other. So, uh, so I'm very appreciative of this connection. Thank you. Well, I think it's, you know, we live in a 21st century technological world, but I think we still operate on 16th century psychology and, yes. and consciousness. I feel like the two things that are going to elevate our conscious, it is, this is what I, tr I truly believe is the two things that are going to elevate our, our collective consciousness right now in the world more than any other thing is things are psych I psychedelics and podcasts. So that sounds mm -hmm. insane that we're talking about psychedelics on a podcast, but it is those two things. I think a, a medium of nuance and uh, a new lens on the world we inhabit. Uh, those are remember. very important tools to, to accomplish the connection and, and, uh, the reconnection that we've been talking about. So it doesn't sound insane at all to me. Uh, it's like actual conversation and connection and, and looking inward. Uh, I, um, it's been very powerful for me. So thank you. Well, thank you, Bill. Thank you for coming on the show. Looking forward to part two sometime soon. Thank you so much. Talk soon.